0: RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode.
1: But for some people, it was even scarier. Tenements fell, buildings fell, and in the case of the Valencia Hotel, That hotel in the Mission District actually sank three stories in 45 seconds. And those broken water mains then poured water into the hotel and it it killed 200 people.
0: My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC. And in each episode, I am joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Meredith Brasher and we are going to discuss the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Meredith spent almost 20 years in insurance as a casualty underwriter at, amongst others, Fireman's Fund and Arch. And then for three years, from 2015, she was a senior product manager at Swiss Re. But in 2018, she made a leap into the great unknown, the world of acting. But I'm delighted to say that she wasn't quite able to leave insurance behind, because in 2021, she started a brilliant podcast called Insurance vs History, which discusses the impact that insurance has had on history and that history has had on insurance. That podcast has included episodes on 9-11, the Titanic, Gangs of New York, and the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, which is what we're going to discuss today. So, Meredith, welcome to the podcast.
1: Welcome. It's great to be here.
0: Um, I think you might be the very first guest on Insurance Covers who has worked within the insurance world, but then has left it to pursue something else. But before we talk about that, how did you how did you first become involved with insurance?
1: I mean, think like everybody else, I sort of fell into it. It was right after 9-11, and a friend of mine worked for Zurich. And she said, I think you might like insurance. Why don't you come and try it out and see how you feel? And so I started at Zurich as an assistant. And I was immediately intrigued by the underwriters. And what I loved about what they did was it was basically detective work. So for someone who was a history major, history graduate student, the idea of doing detective work for a living seemed very appealing. And, you know, in addition, (laughs) underwriting tends to attract and reward people who catastrophize a little bit, maybe, uh, and tend to kind of ask questions that maybe other people don't. So, uh, I eventually ended up in underwriting, and then eventually moved into access and surplus underwriting, which is where I feel like I really found my calling. Uh, I love forms and endorsements, and ENS is so focused on you know coverage issues. And I stayed there for almost twenty years.
0: So, so why did you leave, and then why did you come back again?
1: <laughs> I'd always thought about being an actor. That was something I'd always dreamed about as a kid, but never seemed very practical. And so in 2018, I kind of looked around and I thought, you know, if not now when. So I made the leap and, uh, you know, had some minor success until the pandemic happened (laughs) when acting completely dropped off a cliff, as you might imagine. (laughs) From there, you know, I did what everybody else did during the pandemic. I did a lot of jigsaw puzzles, read a lot of books, watched a lot of TV and tried to think about what I might do with all of my life experiences that might be useful to the world. And I had had conversations with previous people that I worked with about history and insurance and was just kind of surprised at how little, little most people knew about it, myself included. And so I just started asking questions and I thought, you know, maybe somebody has an interest in this besides me. Maybe I should create something out of it. And initially my intent was only to do a couple of episodes, but every time I did an episode, I would have ideas for six more episodes. So here we are.
0: Well, it is a brilliant podcast. Um, I only discovered it recently, um, but I have uh, sort of kind of uh, listened to it kind of assiduously, if that's the right adverb to attach to to listen. But yeah, so anyone out there, any of my listeners, I highly recommend it. So insurance versus history um, available on all good podcast providers. So please search out. Anyway, uh, we're not here to discuss uh, podcasts. We're here to discuss the, the 1906 earthquake and fire in San Francisco. Now, for, for those of us in the in the UK with an interest in insurance, uh, this earthquake is kind of famous largely, in fact, let's say entirely, because of the reaction of the Lloyds underwriter, Cuthbert Heath, uh, who in the aftermath of the disaster famously said to all of his agents, kind of, pay all of our policyholders in full, irrespective of the terms of their policies. And indeed, that quotation has become part of, of Lloyds mythology. So we'll come back to that later um, to find out if the reputation is justified. Um, but let's start at the very beginning. So Meredith, please introduce us to San Francisco in 1906.
1: So San Francisco in 1906 was a bustling city. It was the largest city in California with a population of about 400,000 people. Most of the growth in San Francisco came from two things: first, the gold rush in the 1950s, or the eight. Sorry, the gold rush in the 1850s, <laughs> where. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people came to San Francisco to then go into the Sierra Nevadas and mine gold. And the second thing was in 1869, San Francisco became the endpoint of the first transcontinental railway. So both of those things together created a city that was extremely important in terms of shipping and trade. And it was very busy. It was very crowded. They had very narrow streets. Everyone was kind of crammed in together. I mean, if you've ever been to San Francisco, you know from the topology, there's not a lot of land close to the water. And the further back you get, the higher the hills and cliffs and things go. So they actually uh, kind of ran out of land very quickly, (laughs) which is sort of funny because they decided at that point that they were going to sell the land that was in the bay. And some of that land was, 35 feet underwater, they sold the rights to that land off to people and said, you know, do whatever you need to do to make it usable land. So people put trash or rocks or, you know, mud, even they even sank ships into the harbor to make lands. As a matter of fact, there are 44 ships sunk into San Francisco Bay uh that are underneath San Francisco and this is this is a big chunk of San Francisco today it's the Mission District the Embarcadero North Beach and the marina
0: um and uh, as with all cities at that time it was presumably you know it was a it was a fire hazard waiting to happen it was wooden houses narrow streets presumably
1: yeah by all accounts it should have burned up Many times, and it did burn, but uh, it was about ninety percent wood, brick, and stone. They knew were safer from fire and even from earthquake, but uh, you had to ship those in from the east coast.
0: And um, you just mentioned earthquake there, and we know that San Francisco kind of sits on top of the, the San Andreas uh, Fault, which extends seven hundred and fifty miles through California, and this fault line is, is created by the, the the collision of two tectonic plates. Uh, kind of to the west, we have the Pacific Plate, and to the east, we have the North American Plate. And and the, we often think of tectonic plates as things which happen deep down in the Earth, way below kind of the surface of the Earth. But but the San Andreas Fault is actually visible. Uh, in places, and kind of in 2010, for example, I was in uh, Joshua Tree National Park, and I looked. You could you could look down on the San Andreas Fault as it ran through the Coachella Valley. Quite, you know, a, a phenomenal sight. And um, I have a photograph. Now, as we now know, these two tectonic plates are are, are moving in opposite directions, um, with at, at up to 35 millimeters or, or 1.3 inches. Kind of a year which is a phenomenal amount kind of when you think about it and 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 as the san franciscans were about to find out this made the whole of uh, the san andreas fault prone to major earthquakes so meredith please tell us about the events of 12th of april 1906.
1: so the first pre-tremor started at five twelve a.m so most people were in bed it was quiet And that tremor probably shook a few pictures off the walls, maybe rattled some people in their beds. But the real earthquake hit about 20 seconds later. That earthquake lasted for 45 seconds. And although at that time there was no way to measure the magnitude of the earthquake, seismologists seem to agree that it was about a 7.9 magnitude earthquake, which is quite large. In San Francisco, The reports from people on the ground said that the ground moved like water. And part of this was because of all of this made land, you know, the land that they had filled in at the bay, they had built on top of it, they had run gas and water lines through it, and that type of land tends to liquefy during an earthquake. So it basically became like water. The places where the gas lines and water lines were a lot of those lines blew up. As a matter of fact, there was an observer on 10th Street who said that the street basically blew up from the gas line. It just exploded. But for some people, it was even scarier. Tenements fell, buildings fell. And in the case of the Valencia Hotel, That hotel in the Mission District actually sank three stories in 45 seconds. So it sank three stories into the ground in 45 seconds. And those broken water mains then poured water into the hotel and it it killed 200 people.
0: But that was only the start of San Francisco's problems because the earthquake was one thing. But what then happened over the next few days?
1: What happened was fire. Uh, Fire broke out everywhere all over the city. As a matter of fact there were at least 30 to 50 fires that were big enough in San Francisco at that time to have their own names. So they weren't just, you know, a fire in that building. It was, there was one that was called the ham and eggs fire.
0: That's very Dr. Seuss, isn't it?
1: (laughs) It is very Dr. Seuss. I think it was from a cook. I think it was a cooking related fire, but, uh, and as a matter of fact, there were so many fires and the fires were so incredibly hot that they actually created their own weather system in San Francisco. So, the author, Jack London, was actually in San Francisco when the earthquake happened. He he was able to get out and he was looking out at San Francisco from a distance. And he said all around San Francisco, the air was calm. The weather was perfectly calm. But in San Francisco, it looked like there was a tornado taking up the entire city.
0: So poor old San Francisco um, had a few days of, of devastation. So what, what sort of... In, in terms of figures, kind of what, what what level of devastation are we talking about? How many dead, how many homeless, how many city blocks destroyed and so on?
1: Yeah, so the, the city was mostly destroyed after the end of the first day. So by the end of the first day, the 12th, it was pretty much gone. Uh, they weren't able to put the fires out until almost many days later. It was the 21st before they were able to put the final fires out. But um, basically, so this is kind of where history gets interesting because – There had been a lot of numbers thrown about about how many people had actually died. And it wasn't until the 1960s, there was a woman in San Francisco, her name was Gladys Hansen. She was the San Francisco city archivist and she was so fascinated by the 1906 earthquake that she made it her mission to become an expert. So Gladys Hansen settled on a number, which I think most people have kind of agreed with, that about 3,000 people died. In terms of total destruction, the fire and the earthquake, destroyed 514 city blocks. This was basically the wholesale district, the manufacturing district, government offices, most of the waterfront, basically half the square footage of the city, but the square footage of the city where everyone lived and worked. Most of the deaths were caused by the earthquake, but what was interesting is that the property damage was almost exclusively caused by the fire. Something like I think they said 2% of the damage was actually caused by the earthquake and the other 98% was caused by the fire. So basically the earthquake killed people and the fire destroyed the city. Total estimate of the damage done was approximately 520 million in 1906 dollars, which is about $10 billion today. It was the largest single insurance property loss event in the United States to that date.
0: And uh, that does neatly bring us on to to insurance and 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 on your podcast you you said that uh, in eighteen forty nine, um, so just at the time of the, the gold rush, not one house in San Francisco would have been insured, but that had obviously changed by by nineteen oh six, just kind of fifty six years later. So 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 uh, talk to us about how the, how San Francisco would have been insured in nineteen oh six.
1: In 1906, 90% of all the buildings in San Francisco had some kind of fire insurance. And at the time of the earthquake, there were 225 companies insuring properties in San Francisco. And this included, you know, like Lloyd's of London had a good chunk of it. It included companies in Europe. And then it included companies like Fireman's Fund, which is a U.S. company that was headquartered in uh, San Francisco was established in 1863 in that time when you know as the civil war was happening and just after
0: but the key thing to notice uh, about um, all of these policies is that they were fire policies not earthquake policies and and that's a distinction that we'll come back to again um, in a moment but kind of but first let, let's just return to the chaos of San Francisco in the immediate aftermath of, of the earthquake and fire what what were the practical problems that faced uh, insurers on the ground?
1: Yeah, there were two main problems. The first was transportation and the second one was paperwork. So how do we get those people into San Francisco to adjust claims? And, you know, you had a company like Fireman's Fund who had lost its main headquarter offices and all of the paperwork in that office. So From their standpoint, it was, who had we insured? From the people on the ground, the people who had lost their homes, it was, who am I insured with? How do I find them? How do I contact them to make a claim? You know, my paperwork burned up in the fire too. What's kind of amazing to me is that they were actually quite successful at this. Insurance companies were able to get about 300 to 600 adjusters into San Francisco quite quickly. They set up sort of a central meeting area for people to come to and, you know, work on their claims. They adjusted almost 100,000 insurance policies, which I'm just, it just boggles my mind. Um, sometimes dangerous for the adjusters. If people were unhappy with them, They there were a number of adjusters who got beat up. <laughs> but, you know, in general, it, it actually went pretty well. Uh, all things considered without, you know, backups and computers and and modern transportation.
0: But um, <laughs> I, I would guess that on, on a disaster of this size, um, even if things went well and kind of, you know, they got the loss of justice in and the loss of justice were doing their work. There would there would still be pressure p- placed upon insurers to sort things out quickly by, you know, the press, by politicians and, and everyone else, really. Is that, is that, yeah. is that, a, is that a fair comment?
1: It is a fair comment. I think, you know, despite my personal feeling that I think the insurance companies actually did quite a good job handling this particular disaster, I think from the very beginning, it was pretty clear that the press and the politicians were looking for any opportunity to criticize them. Part of this was just what happened after the disaster in terms of aid. So you had 250,000 people who had been made homeless in this fire and earthquake, some of them moved away. You know, where were you going to live while all of this was going on? I mean, some of them could move away. I know there were a lot of, for example, Chinese immigrants who moved to Oakland. But if you wanted to stay in San Francisco or you had no money to go anywhere, you were kind of stuck there. Uh, the army had provided tents, so they created these huge tent cities. And the tent cities actually lasted for almost two years. I can just only imagine what the conditions were like. But the United States government really provided almost no help. I think maybe half a million dollars in aid. American Red Cross, other aid agencies tried to step in. Uh, Even the Empress of China tried to donate money, especially for the Chinese immigrants who were stranded there. But, you know, really, it seemed like the decision had been made to rely on insurance to help get the city back up and running. And when that didn't happen quite as fast as people wanted, they were quick to criticise.
0: So we have this huge disaster, we have a chaotic situation, we have huge political and emotional pressure being brought to bear on insurers, but insurers have policies and policies have wordings and there are exclusions. And and as as I mentioned a few moments ago, these were fire policies and not earthquake policies. And some of these policies, Perhaps written by the more far-sighted insurers, even even included exclusions for losses caused by earthquakes. So insurers have these legal arguments and available to them. But when it comes to the effectiveness kind of of those ones, well, maybe maybe the exclusions weren't quite as good as they needed to be. So so could you tell us about the the, the California Wine Association uh, case, which neatly sums up the the legal problems that that were faced by insurers, even by those who had earthquake exclusions?
1: Believe it or not, of all of those 100,000 claims that needed to be adjusted, really only 30 court cases happened uh, with disputes over claims. And California Wine Association was one. In the California Wine Association policy, in a lot of the policies that were written in San Francisco in 1906, there was an exclusion, an earthquake exclusion that excluded losses caused, quote, directly or indirectly because of the earthquake. And this is language that's in many modern policies today. It's, it's still something we debate, but basically it was, did the earthquake start the fire or did the fire spring up independently of the earthquake? So if you're excluding loss, directly or indirectly caused by earthquake, what you have to determine is, was the fire damage caused by the earthquake either directly or indirectly?
0: I would say my my instinct, my immediate instinct in that situation would be to say, well, if the earthquake hadn't happened, then the fires wouldn't have happened. And therefore the fires must be either directly or indirectly caused by the earthquake Therefore, the exclusion would apply. Therefore, insurers can refuse to pay.
1: Oh, if only you were our judge. (laughs) You know, it depends. It honestly depends on the jurisdiction in terms of how this gets interpreted even today. So, you know, like you, my first thought is, well, the fires were caused by the earthquake. California Wine Association argued that that was not the case. They argued that the fires that caused the damage at their facilities were actually caused by arson or by the dynamiting of buildings to create fire breaks. So their argument was, you know what, these fires were started independently. The earthquake happened, but these fires were an independent event and therefore are not excluded. In the case of California Wine Association, the California Supreme Court ruled in their favor so they said that the fires were not caused by the earthquake and that the loss should be covered
0: so insurers even those with this what on the face of it appeared to be wide earthquake exclusions were faced with a tricky legal position tricky political position social emotional moral and of course a tricky financial position for them because kind of, you know, they were facing significant losses. So, and uh, on your podcast, you quoted that the British Consul General, Walter Courtney Bennett, now at this point I could put on a sort of a BBC 1906 voice, but I'm I'm not going to. Um, if, if the insurance is not paid, the city is ruined. If the insurance is paid, many of the insurance companies will break. Now, all of this, everything that we've been saying so far is the context for Cuthbert Heath's great message to all of his agents, uh, which was, pay all of our policyholders in full, irrespective of the terms of their policies. What a great fella.
1: He's a great fella, isn't he,
0: Meredith? Isn't he? Isn't he a great fella? He's a great fella, isn't he?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny. Cuthbert Heath is not a US figure. I suspect if you ask US underwriters or people in the US insurance industry who Cuthbert Heath is, they might give you a look. But I know that within the London market and the in the UK marketplace he is considered quite a titan of insurance, right?
0: That is right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so if you don't know who Cuthbert Heath is, I mean, I think I don't know actually who quoted this, but he's generally considered sort of the founder of modern insurance. I've heard that several different times. And what he did was when he started at Lloyd's, he created the first non-Marine syndicate. Basically, you know, almost all of Lloyd's prior to that had been Marine related. And he was the first person to say, you know what, I want to write other things. I want to write fire. He created all kinds of different insurance products that we still use today. I, I read someplace, I was looking some things up yesterday, and I, my understanding is one of his most famous phrases is, why not? which I think is kind of hilarious. You know, he was, like you said, he was He was also very aggressive writing in San Francisco. His syndicate wrote almost 20% of the properties in San Francisco for fire insurance. So he had a real stake in what was happening after the earthquake. But you're right, he did say, you know, pay our policyholders irrespective of their term. Seems extremely generous, very in line with Lloyd's position at that time in terms of, you know, really trying to get goodwill. Um, The quirk of that is, is that a lot of his policies didn't have earthquake exclusions. So what seemed like an extremely generous position was actually quite practical. He probably would have had to pay out on those anyway.
0: He was was also very good at PR. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah. It gave Lloyd's great goodwill in the insurance industry and around the world. Um, But it set, in terms of the earthquake, it kind of set a precedent which is, here was Lloyd's that insured, you know, he insured 20% of the fire insurance. There are probably other underwriters at Lloyd's who also insured parts of San Francisco. And he had basically put a stake in the ground and said, I'm going to pay all my policies, irrespective of any earthquake exclusion. And the press and politicians and the people who had claims basically looked around at the other insurance companies and said, okay, now you.
0: And we, we should point out that I mean, there's also a lot of fraud going on here as well. That the, the policyholders are not exactly innocent. Um, well, obviously the vast majority are innocent, but there are there's a fair-sized minority who were not entirely innocent. Is, is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, you know, it's very fair to say. I mean, obviously, just like now, there probably were a lot of people who weren't aware whether or not they had earthquake exclusions or not on their policies. I mean, people don't read their policies now. I doubt a lot of people read their policies then, but the people in the know. Knew that there was going to be an issue almost immediately, and as a matter of fact, just you know, very soon after the earthquake and fires happened and were extinguished, the San Francisco Real Estate Board basically decided that they were going to only call it the San Francisco Fire going forward, and that was kind of the position that the press took and the government. They just sort of omitted any discussion of the earthquake, and this was indeed to get around earthquake exclusions that they thought might be hampering them. So there is another. I read this missive, it's in my podcast, from uh, one of the military officers to another military officer saying basically as he was walking around the city that he was watching people set fire to their buildings in order to get insurance if they had been damaged by an earthquake and they thought that that might be excluded. Um, Gladys Hansen, again, that uh, San Francisco City archivist had done a lot of work on this and she estimated that something like 30 million in claims were paid out on fraudulent fires Uh, That were set by people and not by the fire and the earthquake itself. So, yeah, there was a a significant amount of fraud helped along by the government. San Francisco city government in the 1906, a little bit afterwards, was just hopelessly corrupt. Uh, and, And they were certainly out to help people as much as they could especially if they got a little bit of a kickback in return.
0: <laughs> so, so, so so, what did the other insurers do? Did, did they follow Cuthber Heath's lead or, or did they do something else?
1: Well, yeah. So first of all, there was a mix of policies. Some had earthquake exclusions and some didn't. Now, obviously, if you didn't have an earthquake exclusion, then it was sort of a non-starter. You were going to pay out on your policy. 35 companies in the United States, including Aetna and Hartford, decided that irrespective of what exclusion was on the policy, that they would just pay outright. For those companies that had earthquake exclusions, obviously it was much tougher, especially if they were ones that maybe thought, you know, we have an exclusion, we think it might hold. Uh, A lot of those companies kind of took a middle-of-the-road position. They decided that they would pay out 75% of the policy. And those insurers were called six-bit insurers in the press, and most of them were pilloried. The companies that held fast were generally European. So about 59 companies with earthquake exclusions held fast to their exclusions. In general, the U.S. companies were more likely to pay claims in full, no matter what the policy language was. The European companies, with the exception of Lloyd's, were more likely to pay 75% of the policy or hold to their exclusion.
0: So what are the medium and long-term consequences for San Francisco um, and for the whole of the U.S. um, of the the earthquake and fire?
1: Yeah, so as I said, there was almost $520 million worth of damage done to the city, and huge chunks of the city were just gone. Um, The insurance companies paid out $180 million. It's not $520 million, but it's something. And without that money, I think San Francisco would look very different. The people that had, you know, lost their properties to fire wouldn't have been able to rebuild, would have had to sell the land if they had not had money from insurance to rebuild. If you were able to stay in the insurance marketplace, I I think something like 12 American insurers went out of business, a couple of European insurers went out of business. But if you could stay in San Francisco, you were richly rewarded After they rebuilt, the city was basically back to what it had looked like in 1906 by 1915. But if you were able to stay and write insurance, rates went up like 85 percent. So there was certainly money to be made. In terms of sort of the world and the country as a whole, so much money was paid out that it basically, I mean, we were still, most places were still on the gold standard, that there was so much gold pulled out of the financial markets overseas that it caused a liquidity crisis. So interest rates around the world went up as banks tightened their strings and tightened their lending, and it actually pushed the United States into a recession in the next year. It's sort of amazing that one event and the insurance being paid out for that event could do that to an entire economy.
0: And and finally, what, what is the position now in California? So because a, a few episodes ago, uh, we had Karen Clark on uh, as a guest, and she was uh, talking about the modeling of catastrophes and the losses caused by particularly hurricanes in florida but she was saying that, the, that an earthquake in los angeles might create a loss of over over one trillion dollars um but that not much of that would be insured most of it would be uninsured bearing in mind that california is where california is and a big earthquake is going to happen at some point in the near future why why is there still this level of uninsurance?
1: Originally, after the earthquake, you know, there was a push to exclude earthquake entirely um, among U.S. insurance carriers and even European insurance carriers. But it really went nowhere. And California basically said, listen, you can't exclude earthquake on your policies. I think it was like 1907, 1908, where they passed a law said you couldn't do that. And so my understanding is kind of the way they got around it was by creating separate earthquake coverage, which is kind of how it's handled today, right? You have your regular property policy, and then you purchase a separate policy for earthquake. The problem is, I think, those earthquake policies are quite expensive. Um, And that's just my opinion. But, you know, based on the reading that I've done, you know, it's expensive to live in California. You're already paying a lot of property tax, probably. Um, Most earthquake policies, you know, I think they start at about $1,000 and go up from there. And the deductible can be quite large. I mean, if you had a half a million dollar home in California and you had a 15 percent deductible for earthquake, that's a seventy five thousand dollar deductible. I think since there hasn't been a lot of like really damaging earthquakes in San Francisco or in California as a whole for so long, I think people do look at it and say, you know what, I- I'm going to just take my chances.
0: Well, I hope there isn't an earthquake soon because my son lives in Los Angeles. So uh,
1: (laughs) I I hope hope so, too. (laughs) I hope
0: that if if one does happen, it happens in some sort of obscure part of California where there aren't any people. To conclude, Meredith, um, as someone who, who was in insurance, but now is not, what bit of advice would you give to someone thinking about taking a job in the glorious world of insurance?
1: So I think insurance is a great field, and I wish more people would consider it, especially people who are in college thinking about what they want to do with their lives. Uh, I think it's great if you like to analyze things and you enjoy a little bit of ambiguity, sometimes a lot of ambiguity. Uh, But my advice would be to find something complicated within insurance and get really good at it. Specialization is key.
0: Thank you, Meredith. That was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.